Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Nicole Jacobs. Since her appointment to the role of Designate Domestic Abuse Commissioner for England and Wales in September 2019, Nicole has begun energetically putting her 20 plus years of experience in domestic abuse policy and intervention to work, driving improvements to transform the response to domestic abuse in England and Wales. She is committed to championing victims and survivors of all ages, status and backgrounds, and to shining a light on practices that fail them. Nicole began her career at the Alabama State Coalition Against Domestic Violence in the United States. In 1999, she came to London as an early worker at Advance, one of the first advocacy services in the UK. In 2000, she began working at Standing Together Against Domestic Violence, expanding the coordinated community response efforts into health settings. Before becoming CEO of Standing Together in 2013, she held a number of senior leadership positions at highly respected organisations, including Special Projects Director at Safe Lives and Senior Operations Manager at Refuge. So I am super excited to welcome Nicole Jacobs to the show. Welcome, Nicole. Oh, thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. It's a real honor. So thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited because I know that what you do makes such a massive difference to so many people. So please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in your role as Domestic Abuse Commissioner. I came to this role a a little over a year ago. So this is um, a a new role for England and Wales. It's it's very similar to other commissioners that we tend to have in this government, which is, you know, we have a children's commissioner, we have a victim's commissioner. And so with domestic abuse, I think the, the, the agreement amongst, you know, all parties and all people was that we are not really nearly where we need to be in terms of our services, our um, responses to domestic abuse. I mean, we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And so the appointment of the commissioner is, um, is a statutory role, so in law, and that was part of the Domestic Abuse Act, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, I was appointed as a designate, so prior to the, the bill passing, but that's um, now become legislation in the end of April. And, um, and so I'm fully enrolled. And I came to it after many, many years of um, work in domestic abuse services. So you can, I don't know if you can tell from my accent, but I'm originally from the US. Um, and I worked there at a state coalition against domestic abuse. And then I moved to London in the late 1990s and have worked more or less in domestic abuse services ever since. So some of those are national charities, some were very local. Um, 
And a lot of that obviously really impacts my view of things as the domestic abuse commissioner. So I'm always, I'm always thinking no matter what it is, kind of how does this impact survivors of domestic abuse? What happens operationally on the ground? How do, how do policies, laws, all of this, how does it really play out? for real people. And so that's what I hope I bring um, in terms of my greatest strength to the office. Wow, well, that's a big remit. I mean, domestic abuse covers so many things, doesn't it? So does your role cover all types of domestic abuse? It's a large role, but I suppose it's very defined. So um, sometimes people hear commissioner and they think that I'm involved in all services and that's not so much the case it's it's a public um, appointment and I have a team obviously um, at the office and we primarily focus on policy in relation to domestic abuse um, mapping of services so anything in terms of research analytical work that really help to drive improvement um, in these areas and then we have a practice and partnerships team, which is very focused at kind of making relationships at the local level. Um, obviously, we do a lot of public communications as well. So I would say um, it is about working in partnership with a lot of our frontline or direct services, um, also policymakers, academics. It's kind of um, helping to lead conversations um, and practice and uh, funding. Uh, so whatever it takes to really drive um, progress. And I tend to use this um, term that I've always worked towards in, in the whole of my career, which was coined by a woman called Ellen Pence, who was from um, Minnesota in the US, and it's called the coordinated community response. And really what that simply means is just this you know, idea that people who are subject to domestic abuse will not all go to the same place for help and support and will use different terms. You know, there'll be different pathways to, to getting what you need. And so that means that all of our services and the community and our statutory services, by that I mean health services, housing services, that kind of thing. We need to have a coordinated approach as well as our specialists charities and, and advisors. And so it's not the kind of problem that is solved any one way. And it's so prevalent and does so much harm. We need to have the services and the focus in place so that people really get what they need. So how do you identify what are the key issues that you're going to take on and, and discuss? I think going forward, we'll do a lot of um, public consultation for this. Um, in this first year, because of the pandemic, um, but and also, you know, in, in getting up and running as a statutory uh, office holder, um, what we've tried to do is really focus our work on areas of practice where we can see, you know, really obvious gaps and priority and opportunity. So one is um, one priority, for example, is family courts. We see in England and Wales real problems in our family courts that's very well established and we are taking a really active role in that. Um, we're also looking at support for people who have less recourse to public funds and I know this is a very particular phrase we use here in the UK but in other words you know, there are people who come as students or on certain types of visas 
or undocumented to England and Wales who don't have the same access to say housing support or other types of support because of their status, their immigration status. And yet they can obviously be victims of domestic abuse. And so that's a gap that we're really trying to work on in the office. Um, another is about provision of community-based services. So domestic abuse services where we see a real postcode lottery. I would imagine this is the case in almost all areas everywhere in the world. Um, but certainly here we have, um, you know, where I'm living, the services may be not as well-funded and stable as where you're living. And, and I think we have to get to a point with this, um, with our services, that they have funding so that no matter where you are, we would have equal access to services and the same types of provision of services. And I think that comes from the fact that our first refuges for domestic abuse are only a little over 50 years old. So a lot of our services and support for domestic abuse has changed over time. They've kind of added on in local areas over time. And I think we now have to now take a step back and think this is something that we need to have a really clear provision in all areas so that people get what they need at the time they need it. That's another key priority for our office. Yeah, I mean, that is such a, a valuable service. Having used charity, domestic abuse charities myself and being the patron of the DASH charity, you know, I know how much they help people and support people. And, it, and it's invaluable when people reach out and ask for help to have someone that really understands what you're talking about. Because even though I think, especially now since the COVID and pandemic, awareness of domestic abuse has gone up, but actually skill set and expertise in that area, I don't think is as caught up yet. So those charities really are invaluable as a way of helping and supporting. And I know in the UK here, we're very lucky to be leading the way with the, with the support that we have. And that isn't the same all over the world at all. And in fact, actually, I work with um, a lady called Michelle Dewsbury, who, who has her own charity called Unsilenced Voices. And they go into Africa and they help um, women and children out in Africa. But uh, you mentioned their uh, family courts, and obviously that is an area very close to my heart, being known as the, the divorce coach. And a lot of my clients um, and people that listen into my podcast are in the middle of going through the family court system. Um, so can you explain a little bit about what the key issues and challenges that you're seeing from your perspective are with, with the system at the moment? Yeah, I think... Um... I think there are quite a few and we're lucky here in England in a lot of ways because we've had this process of government itself looking at the family courts in relation to domestic abuse and um, last summer a report we call it the harm panel report um, was published and it I think it's a really good example of, of government getting a grip on and admitting to some of really significant problems within the family court system. Um, and I say that because, you know, that's hard for governments to do, obviously. And I think it, they deserve a bit of credit for, um, you know, engaging with the public and hearing from so many people and also academics and people who work in family courts. So across the board, a really great piece of work. And now we're trying to implement some of the changes from that report. But the main thing was, was, you know, was essentially how adversarial the system is. And so the trouble 
um, people obviously will not have had experience likely in the family court before they're there. Um, so they may not be expecting to talk about domestic abuse. They may not use the term domestic abuse. I mean, I think so much of the time we envision how things would work and you, you would think, well, you would go into that system you would, you know, explain the ex your experiences of domestic abuse and they'd be well understood. And the trouble with that is it just neglects uh, the fact that it's not how human beings really work. You know, sometimes people will, um, will reflect later and think, yes, in fact, I was a victim of domestic abuse. I wasn't calling it that at the time, um, but actually I was quite severely abused. Um, I've seen this throughout my entire career, not just in my not in family courts. I've done so many, I've probably talked to thousands of um, survivors of domestic abuse who've said, I never was using that term at first. I was never recognizing that. Um, uh, that term, I would have walked right past a poster um, that was offering services for domestic abuse. And it's only later that, or, or as you go that you start to realize um, it's not that you don't mind it. You, you dislike what's happening. You know, it's wrong, but using the term is what I mean. And then you go into a system like family court and then that come, becomes much more of a problem. You may not have ever called the police. You may not have um, spoken to anyone in a formal capacity, which of course then makes it much harder for the court to understand. And, and then you add the adversarial nature on top of that and the stakes being so high, what, what, where will the children live? Who will they see? Um, and then of course, a perpetrator of domestic abuse, anyone who's abusive um, will manipulate the court, you know, will use to their advantage at the fact that maybe there, there isn't quote unquote evidence elsewhere. Um, they may um, raise counter allegations and say that, you know, this parent, is is just doesn't want you know my my ex just doesn't want me to see the children and of course this is then becomes you know if the court is ill-equipped to really understand what's happening or slow down take um take take a full view of all of that information things can go terribly wrong um and the fact is with all of that said you know family court is a is a private um you know, it's unlike criminal courts where you and I could go in and watch a court proceeding as a member of the public. Um, understandably private, because of the privacy of the matters that are being discussed and decided upon, family courts don't have huge amounts of transparency. So a lot of that are the kinds of things we're working on right now. We're trying to figure out as a, as a commissioner's office, what is the kind of information we need about the family court to know, not necessarily to interfere with individual cases, but to know largely how is the court addressing um, and understanding domestic abuse on the whole. And so we have a long way to go to make progress there. Um, but I hope that's, that's, I would imagine you, you hear this all of the time too, um, Sarah, like you must hear many issues, but I would imagine those are some of the things that you often hear as well. Yeah, yeah, all the time. And I think the lack of understanding by the family court professionals of what domestic abuse is. Now, I, I totally understand that if you haven't actually experienced it yourself, 
it is going to be harder for you to appreciate exactly what it is, especially when it comes to things like coercive control, which are quite insidious. They creep up slowly, you know, on its own isolated incidents are, are very difficult to prove and they don't really seem much. It could just be someone having a bad day, um, but you and I both know it's a lot more than that. But I suppose the system isn't set up to enable you to easily prove that. Um, and even I spoke at a law society event and one of the judges said to me, Sarah, yes, it is illegal to have coercive control now is illegal. We have the legislation, but really can anything be a crime if it's impossible to prove in, in a court? Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one -one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. But really, can anything be a crime if it's impossible to prove in, in a court? And he said, you know, coercive control is pretty much impossible. And that was coming from a judge. And I thought, wow, you know, it, it seems like it's a box ticking exercise. And, you know, that was one of the things that I found was quite frustrating. But then you know, the lack of education and the fact that it's not compulsory for, you know, judges, barristers and lawyers to have some really comprehensive domestic abuse training, I think is just completely unacceptable. I don't know what your views are on that. Yeah, I think, um, I think across the board, um, whether you're talking about judiciary, a housing officer, a nurse, um, a social worker, I think we have a long way to go for people to really understand and feel really confident as a practitioner to understand domestic abuse and that range of behaviors. I have met with the judicial college about this um, and they were very interested to tell me kind of the range of, of training that they do. Um, but I would say even with the best training, you know, there is an, always an ongoing need to refresh, understand better, um, have, have a good understanding of domestic abuse because it is complex in a lot of ways. But, um, but I would disagree with that judge that spoke to you at that event because I think you know, one of the things that we're trying to, to do a lot more with the police in particular is the training of the collection of evidence for coercion and control. Um, how do you, I know, it may be that in some cases there would not be evidence, but in some cases there often is. And it is a matter of training police in particular to see that evidence collected and make sure that that's done. So, for example, text messages, you know, um, 
you know, there's a lot of information that sometimes officers would fail to collect because they're not sure where that's headed, what would be done with it. And, um, and there is some training across the country now called Domestic Abuse Matters, DEA Matters training. And it's, uh, it's proven to be, in fact, with evaluation, proven to be quite effective in increasing charges for coercion and control. So it's relatively new legislation. We've had it since 2015. Um, and in the Domestic Abuse Act, it was revised to be applicable for post-separation. In other words, you don't, it used to be, um, you would have to be in the relationship still in order to, um, for coercion and control offense to be committed. And now with the Domestic Abuse Act, um, part of the change has been that that can be post-separation, which of course for, for your listeners is really, really important. Um, especially, sorry, in England and Wales um, in particular, because what it means is the financial abuse that takes place, the ongoing coercion and control um, is, is now firmly um, in scope for those charges. And that is a, that is a, a positive step forward. Yeah, well, that's really good to hear. Um, I guess a lot of my clients have never got the police involved because it's been something that they've just managed or even, as you know, minimized and normalized, which is what we do when we're in toxic relationships a lot of the time. Um, and it's only really, like you said at the beginning, when you come out that you look back and think, oh my goodness. So sometimes there isn't that police record. And maybe that judge was referring more to those circumstances. I'm not sure, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's good to hear that there are more systems and hopefully that will then increase awareness anyway so that it will be easier to spot and identify. I think that's important. You know, I really don't mean to convey that the only way is to call the police and have that charge. I think people shouldn't hesitate to call the police if they feel that that's needed, you know, if they feel in fear. But I do also want to reassure that I think, you know, there's a growing awareness that the vast majority of survivors of abuse don't call the police. And we know that. That having said that, it's one of the most frequent reasons the police are called. So it's not either or. We have to have the police doing an excellent job when they're called. Um, but we also have a growing recognition of really how to understand and assess um, for domestic abuse for the vast majority of people who won't have had that contact. So Again, our systems are catching up. Um, and I would say that across the board, it's not particularly, I think there are some particular issues in family court, but I think across the board, whether it's housing and health, community-based services, we really need to have that coordinated response where people understand how to reach out and help and support as early as possible and just recognize the role we all play um, whether it, it, whether it's friends and family, you know, of course, we know from um, from all of these years and just that logic tells us that that it'll be our friends and family podcasts like this, these kind of informal ways of seeking support where people get their most kind of initial help and support and advice. So um, what you're doing is incredibly important in getting these messages across um, and I guess the other thing I'd always want your listeners to know is, you know, the helplines that are out there, those those kind of community-based support services that you and I were talking about before, like the Dash Charity, you know, people sometimes hold themselves back from calling because they'll think, 
is it bad enough? Do you know they hear much more extreme cases maybe and think, oh, that's what those services are for. It's for, for people who've, you know, experienced X, Y, or Z. And, um, and I think what, what I would encourage is just to always reach out. Those, those helplines are always really wanting to hear from you and can give you some good advice and support and would never, ever, ever, you know, minimize what you've been through. And it is worth a call. It's worth a try. And they often can be a great bridge to kind of understanding options in so many areas. And so um, people often are, will always reflect back and say, I'm really glad I made that call. Oh, yes, well said. So I completely agree. And, you know, reaching out to these charities, you know, it's something when you phone them and they get it and they understand it and they they don't make you feel like the lunatic in the asylum. You know, it's amazing. And it really then just give you a little bit of strength to help you carry on. I, I know from personal experience how how powerful that can be. Um, Nicole, you mentioned the Domestic Abuse Act. Um, tell my listeners a little bit about that, because that does reflect some positive changes that are coming, I hope. Yeah, so it, as I said, it, um, it passed in April, and it's a kind of a hard piece of legislation to describe in, you know, very, very quickly, because it does a lot of things all at once. And one of the things it does is it creates a definition for domestic abuse, which may sound really simple to people, but Believe it or not, I've worked for 20 years um, with a, just an agreed kind of cross-governmental agreed definition. So this puts into legislation a, a legal definition of domestic abuse. And very importantly, that includes coercion and control and financial abuse. Very important. Um, children as victims in their own right is part of the definition. I think that really should and will change um, People who are very focused on children, like the family courts or people who work in children's social care, I think it gives a greater um, weighting to the idea of anyone who's um, in a household where domestic abuse is happening. It's not, it's not a question of whether they're a victim or not. Or, you know, sometimes you hear, well, did the were the children affected as if they possibly could not be? And I think that's a really important definitional um, um, signal for all of us professionals. I think it's interesting. It's one of the things that I hear my clients saying a lot is, well, just because it happened to you doesn't mean that the children are being abused and you've got to separate them out because there's no evidence that the child is being abused. What are your thoughts on that? I, th I think it's very hard. I mean, I'm a parent myself and I would, I know that the inclination of a parent is to really not want any harm to their child. And so um, I think, you know, I've talked to many survivors who will have said, I tried to tell myself that the children were not affected, um, but now I realize like the, the stress, um, the difficulty in parenting, you know, all of the above, the, the abuse itself, hearing it from another room even. I think anyone, uh, who it, sadly, you know, if your primary caregiver is being abused, um, you know, there is a lot of evidence to show that it's, it has the same effect of being abused yourself. So I think a lot of this, um, this part of it being the de in the definition is just a, re a recognition of that evidence, um, which is the, 
children are by any um, measure affected um, and are victimized in the, is, as you know, part of being in the household where domestic abuse is taking place. And obviously there is a big overlap between children who may be abused themselves physically um, or trying to intervene or trying to, you know, trying to help a parent. Um, so there's a big overlap there. Getting back to the Domestic Abuse Act and wanting people to know what, what changes. It gives a duty for refuge provision to be funded or accommodation-based services. Um, if you're listening from America Shelter, and that's been a big problem here, as I was saying earlier, in terms of funding for that. So that's a, a great step forward. It gives priority need if someone is homeless due to domestic abuse. It used to be that there was a vulnerability test if you had children or there other things had to be in place. Now it gives a strict priority need by virtue of being a victim of domestic abuse. That's a huge step forward. Um, there's a lot of provisions in the bill which improve family court and criminal court, the ability to give evidence. So um, I'll give you an example. One, one provision of the bill prohibits the perpetrator of abuse from cross-examining um, their former partner in family court, which sadly happens a lot, especially if people come to court unrepresented. And so there's a now that's uh, prohibited because of this act. I mean, keeping in mind, there's a bit of implementation time we need to give. Um, the act also has a new order of protection, which is will be piloted first and then rolled out. But it's a very interesting one because it you could apply for the the order in criminal or family court. Third parties can apply for it. And it can also contain what we call positive requirements. So things like an, um, a requirement for the perpetrator to be assessed for mental health or to go to attend a perpetrator program. Um, so it's a really interesting, much more proactive order. And because it has a lot of those moving parts, it will need to be piloted first. And then there are new offenses in this act. The one we were talking about earlier, the, the post-separation or the you know, coercion and control after the point at which the relationships ended. Um, there's a new standalone offense of non-fatal strangulation because we know that's a very common physical assault, you know, hands around the neck and restricting breathing. We see that a lot in our risk assessments for domestic abuse when people come into services and tell us what's happened. And so that is now a standalone offense, which will encourage the police, I think, to ask about that more, take it more seriously when they hear that, because of course it only takes a few seconds for, for people to have serious harm or death. Um, and it's a third of our domestic homicides are, are done by strangulation. So, um, so that's an important offense. And threats of sharing indecent images. So we, you know, this is a very common thing, sadly, that's happening a lot with domestic abuse where, you know, photos are taken, videos, and then there's a threat, there's, a, there's an offense of sharing, actively sharing, but it's often really the threat of sharing that really keeps victims um, much more obedient to the perpetrator um, because of this threat. And so that is now a, a standalone offense. So there's, a, like I said, many, many moving parts to this, um, this piece of legislation. It has my, my um, office within it, which is, establishes the office and gives my office some powers 
um, for public bodies to um, give information when I when my office is seeking it, um, and also when, an ability for my office to make recommendations to public bodies that have to be responded to within 56 days. So some total, I hope between any of that, your listeners, um, if they needed to, would benefit from, from some of those provisions. I mean, that sounds incredible, doesn't it? Because it covers so many things that are really needed right now. I guess with anything, there's going to be a time lag before we see these things up and running. Is there a time estimate on these things as when they will be in place? Yeah, it's um, well, to give you an idea, we have a spreadsheet in my office with every bit of the, the act and it has 90 some items on it and uh, that we're tracking in terms of implementation. So um, some are more um, very quick and some are going to take a bit more time. So the definition obviously is kind of a fundamental um, piece that will come in in, I think, October time in terms of laying reg regulations and all of the work behind the scenes that has to happen. Um, my office, the provisions and powers of my office will be there in October. Um, but I suppose what we're trying to do as much as we can is on our website of the DA commissioner's website or our Twitter feed to try to make sure people are as well informed on these various timelines as possible. And I keep encouraging government to um, put in the public domain some kind of even if it's slightly rough time scale so people really know exactly when um, these provisions are actually enacted and in place so um, there is a lot of work behind the scenes but it, it's um, at this stage I'd love to point you to one one document somewhere but I as soon as we have it we'll be putting it on our website so maybe that's a, a good place to look. Yeah, so please tell me where can my listeners find more information out, out about this and also, as you said, follow you on Twitter to keep updated with all the amazing work that you're doing. Yes, well, we have, um, if you were just to Google Domestic Abuse Commissioner England and Wales, I'm sure that would be the only website that, that comes up because it is quite a unique um, office. And then um, I think that the Twitter feed is um, Domestic Abuse Commissioner DAC. Um, commissioner uh, uh, and my name obviously Nicole Jacobs so I think um, there's there's a two Twitter feeds but one is more of a, an official account um, but I would hope um, people can find it I certainly follow you so I can imagine people could find uh, find through your through, through your account I hope um, well I follow you as well I'm following the uh Nicole Jacobs ST on Twitter that's what I'm following so yeah if anyone wants to jump on that and follow Nicole and find out all the amazing work she's doing please do now thank you so much for joining us Nicole you've been amazing and I have one last question that I ask all my guests who join me because my podcast is called heartbreak to happiness I think it's really important to know what happiness is so that you can spot it along the way even if you are going through something tough like experiencing domestic abuse right now Obviously, with your job, you're going to be facing so many sort of hard to hear stories, sad stories, traumatic stories. So please tell us, what is happiness for you? Oh, I am one of those people who I think I find um, very simple things in life um, happy. I like I like the routine of the day. I think in the last year, I've really valued like the fun of 
um, you know, a really great cup of coffee that's taken a bit of time, you know, or a really great um, kind of self-care in that way. I was sitting yesterday, it was pouring with rain in London and I just sat and just listened to the rain and I like really enjoyed just taking a moment and, um, and just trying to find those little simple everyday things. But um, in terms of my work, I people often will say that to me, but I'm sure you feel this the, the same way about what you do, Sarah, is um, I find, the, of course, it's very hard to hear um, people who've suffered domestic abuse through no fault of their own. And, um, but I also find it very inspiring how people are so resilient you know, will we'll really, um, you know, some of, I, I'm more astounded and kind of in awe of people who, you know, who really persevere. And, um, and that's in those simple things, you know, getting the kids to school, um, finding some time to be kind to your neighbor, despite all of the things that are happening in your life, you know, those are, you know, or, or even having time to come to a meeting and talk about what has happened to them so that it influences others. Um, I find that really inspirational and I get to see that all the time. So I find that, um, you know, that gives me a lot of joy in my day-to-day and in making change and, and seeing how things don't change often as fast as I want, but, but that people are wanting to do better and wanting to make change in this area. And I think we have to remain optimistic. So um, I hope that helps. Oh, I mean, thank you so much, Nicole, because yeah, you really are an inspiring woman. You are making so many positive changes. And I know that this is going to help so many women, not just now, but further down the line who are coming up behind us. And, you know, the people that have survived abuse and gone on um, are very, very grateful. And I you know, speak for everyone, say a huge thank you. And we're cheering you on from oh. the sidelines all the way. So thank you so much for being a fabulous guest today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to Twitter and follow Nicole, Nicole Jacobs ST. Follow her amazing work and see what she's up to next. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Heartbreak to Happiness.